everybody, and welcome to another Earthworm Cooey podcast. And I have a special guest today. It's James Murray. And James is from the UK. He's the founding editor and editor-in-chief of Business Green. How are you going, James? Uh, good, good. Not too bad at all. Now, look, tell me about Business Green and, uh, and what you guys are doing there. Yeah, well, we've been going for uh, eight years now, coming up to nine years, and uh, it kind of does what it says on the tin. That the goal is to be a news and analysis resource for the green economy, for businesses that want to go green, for, for clean tech businesses that are trying to pioneer the, the new low-carbon economy and, and provide the information and the, the news, the analysis, the opinion that does have this crucial role to play as kind of boiling the wheels of this economic transition that we're in. And it, it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride, as the cliche goes, developing the site over the last nine years. But we've, we've got to a stage where we've got a good readership, you know, reasonable level of traction and, and increasingly a subscriber base of people who want this in-depth information and are willing to fund good journalism and, and, and get it out there. It is good journalism. And congratulations to you guys. I mean, I, I look at your site regularly and, and read your articles. You focus a lot on energy, I think. You're looking at a lot of what's happening in the energy space, renewables and fossil fuels. But but deforestation as well, we, we appreciate you guys have covered a lot of things that we've done and a lot of people are doing in the deforestation space. But you're generally yeah. you're just generally looking broadly at the environmental issues and how businesses respond, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's in some sometimes we've had conversations where we thought we're trying to go too broad because it is it's everything. I mean, we we have a sort of joke in the office that we're trying to cover the environment and the economy, which is another word for trying to say we're trying to cover everything. Uh, and there is there's so much going on in this space, and it does you know if you're a green business, you have to, or if you're a business with aspirations to be green, you have to engage with all these issues. So we do cover a lot of energy because you know that's the sector at the moment that really is at the cutting edge of decarbonisation. But of course, it's only the first sector that's at that cutting edge. You've then got to look at transport. You've got to look at automotive. You've got to look at aviation. You've got to look at buildings. And then you're getting into the even more complex issues in a way. You've got to look at these supply chains. You've got to look at the impact that we're having beyond climate change on biodiversity, on, on water. And you, you, you quickly find yourself uh, with this huge, huge range of, of issues that you can dip in and out of. But we, we try to be led by the readers. You know, our readers are, as I say, clean tech entrepreneurs and sustainability executives. And, you know, they let you know pretty quickly what areas are of most interest, what areas are priorities at the moment. So currently we are seeing a lot on supply chain as, as the big blue chips move more and more into engaging with that issue. And, and obviously, post Paris, there is this huge focus on practically how do we make deep decarbonisation happen. Yeah. Now, there's a lot going on, that's for sure. And, and look, tell me a bit about yourself. How did you get into this? I mean, you're obviously, well, you're, 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 you've come from a journalistic background, but you've obviously got this environmental side to you. How, how, did, how did you get into this, James? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's sort of two sides to it. I mean, the first side is very young boy, just that engagement with environmental issues that I think all environmentalists share. I think there's actually been some studies that show environmentalists always sort of share, almost always share a, a childhood that was embedded in some way or experienced nature in some way. So, you know, I, I grew up in you know, East Anglia out and out beyond London in, in the countryside and, you know, was lucky enough to live in a small village that kind of had a bit of countryside right outside there and you, you kind of have that kind of immediate engagement with these issues. And I, I also remember quite distinctly school, kind of two or three of the lessons that really stuck in my head because, I, you know, I was at school in the sort of late 80s, early 90s that time and it's when we were just starting to be taught about climate change. I just remember sitting in a geography lesson being taught the basics of the greenhouse effect of the heat coming in and not going out because of these gases and thinking, shit, that's serious. We're, you know, we're, that's we're not, in trouble, yeah. 
that's, you know, where does that go? Are we just going to solve that? Uh, and also the other key lesson that anyone my age, I'm 36 now, but anyone who sort of was at school in, in the 80s and 90s will remember the other key thing was acid rain. Right. And we were just taught that lesson over and over again about acid rain. Cause it's such a kind of, it, it's such a sort of case study for so many of these issues in that it was sort of cross-border and it was UK factories causing uh, forests to die in Scandinavia. And there was sort of this environmental injustice side to it. And, and, and it, it seemed an intractable problem. And then we don't hear about that anymore because we actually, to a degree, not completely, but to a degree, we solved it right. through innovation and regulation and strong policies. And so, I mean, that those sort of two kind of lessons from my childhood kind of have, have always kept me interested. And then the, the other side of it that got me interested more, more latterly is, I, you know, I always wanted to be a journalist, lucky enough to become a journalist in my early 20s. And I was writing an IT magazine and writing about technology. And I was never very good at it because I just wasn't as interested as you need to be in the sort of the business side of IT and, and the coding. And that's something that's always went way over my head. But it wasn't your passion. I, I'm, yeah, just, it, wasn't, it wasn't a passion. I enjoyed it. And you learn a lot in that sector, but it, it didn't really speak to me. And I, but I was lucky enough to get the green beat around 2005. And, and again, the IT companies were some of the earliest movers um, in the green business space. They got it as they get most things. They got it a lot earlier than other people. And, and I suddenly found that it was, it was sort of a professional thing in a way that when you were covering these IT companies, they're so media savvy and so PR led that it was very difficult to get any good stories or any good interviews because everything was so controlled by these big PR companies. And I got the green beat and started talking to these executives about some of the green data center work they were doing or some of the green software work they were doing. And there was just this, this shift because people wanted to talk to you. And people weren't quite as controlled and they were actually engaging with the issues. And as a journalist, that was fantastic because you started to get good stories and started to feel like you're, you're really letting the reader know something that wasn't immediately available from a 300-word press release. Right. And, and so I did that for a year or so and really, really enjoyed covering that area and went to my boss and said, there's more here than just the IT industry making this transition. Everyone's going to make this transition. Everyone's going to have to do it. Look, yeah. Yeah, and we looked around, and at that time, there was Green Biz in the US, who I massively admire doing some really interesting work, and that was about it. Right. There, there really wasn't kind of a business title that said, we're serious about business, we understand you know, capitalism might need reforming, but it's not about to go away, and it has a lot of upsides. But equally, we do need to change business as usual. We need to address these big, big issues. And we felt there was a, there was a gap there between the media coverage that's always a bit, you know, sort of the Guardian style. And again, I love the Guardian, but there is an element of all businesses are evil. Yeah. This is, you know, there's no upside here. And at that time, the conventional mainstream business press still just saw green as a niche. And and we sort of said, it's not a niche. And if it is a niche, we're going to own it. And since then, I think we've been vindicated because a lot, if you look at the business press coverage now, certainly the serious business press, Reuters, Bloomberg, the FT, they're so much more engaged with this issue. They get it now. Um, and it's because their readers get it now. Yeah, well, you know, I think you've touched on a really interesting point, and and a lot of the lot of the stuff is a bit depressing, and uh, it's all bad news. And sometimes I I think I've got to turn off Twitter and and stop looking at it because some of the information that comes through in the end it just gets you down. And this sort of is what led us to this discussion in a way because it was a week or so. Well, yeah, a week ago we had a backwards and forwards on Twitter where we were talking about some articles and. You suggested it might be time to update an article you wrote a year ago. You've rec- you mentioned you were 36. You've recently become a father uh, just last year. Congratulations, mate. Yep. Uh, Thank you. How, how's it going, the little bloke? 
he's doing great. He's doing great. He's uh, yeah, he's nearly walking. He's um, talking away all the time. Like likes his words. That's good. Mostly well behaved. Um, <laughs> Getting some sleep. Still not sleeping brilliantly, but apart from that, it's uh, it's fantastic. Yeah, good on you. And uh, well, you wrote a really great article, and I enjoyed it at the time. And you reminded me to read it again. And it was called "The Joy and the Fear." And we were just talking a minute ago about, you know, business screen, it's a newswire. You've got to be working very hard and getting the stories out there, getting the stories out there, keeping up with what's going on. And it's not easy to step aside from that, step back, if you like, and, and have a bit more of a reflection. And you wrote this article uh, last year. Your little fellow was born in March, I think, wasn't he? And uh, so this came out April, May, I believe. I think, yeah, it was towards the end of May. It t- took me a little while to, to, to um, get through the sleepless nights and actually have a, a <laughs> right. bit of time to write. But, uh, right. Yeah, it, it, it took a little bit of time in gestation and then, yeah, got it out in the end, towards the end of May. Yeah, and as I said, it's called The Joy and the Fear. And, and you said, as a new father, what can any of us do faced with the credible warnings? Humanity is facing some, some awful shit. I, I like the article. And just, just tell us a bit about where you were coming from and, and, and what you wrote there, mate. We can we can get into the specifics about some of the things you yeah. talked about later. Well, it was, I mean, it was you're right. It's, you do need to sort of step back and think occasionally, particularly, I mean, the media now, the media cycle is so 24 hours rapid that you do find yourself getting lost a little bit and, and, and you can lose that perspective of, what, of how we're actually doing, particularly for us, because we write a lot of good news stories on Business Green. We write a lot about good things that businesses are doing. And a fair amount of the bad things as well and the risks that they face. But it's easy to be quite upbeat. And then you do have to sort of step back and think, okay, are we actually making progress? How big is the challenge? And, and these kind of big picture issues. And I try to do it once every six months or once a year or so. And I've written a couple of big pieces. I did a piece on new environmentalism a couple of years ago about how environmentalism was had to shift away from being this kind of left-wing niche issue into being something much more dynamic, much more exciting, much more kind of business friendly, but obviously not business as usual. Um, and then last year, I wrote this piece that really was triggered by becoming a new father. And yeah, Callum was born, say, in March and a fairly sort of traumatic birth that I think most people or certainly a lot of people have to have to go through. And you find yourself thinking an awful lot around that time, again, as I think most sort of new parents do about the life they'll have and the challenges that they'll face and the challenges that we'll all face. And it's always been one of my key things about talking about climate change is, is the sense that we don't have a proper understanding or, or we, we willfully ignore the timescales involved. You know, we're talking the target that the UK has officially signed up to is an 80% reduction in emissions by 2050. Now, I'm not young by any stretch, but by 2050, I'll be 70 and probably either just retired or potentially still in the workforce given the way pensions are going. Yes. And, and you think there's this, still this kind of hangover sense that this is about generation tense and it's not at all it's absolutely about my generation right we will see whether we have you know if i if i live to be as old as my oldest grandparent you know i'll be around in 2070 2075 and i'll see whether we've done it or not you will and of course you know and by done it or not i mean net zero emission economy and, and actually headed off the worst of these impacts that virtually every credible scientist says that we're going to face and of course my son is a generation below that mm-hmm. and he will touch wood all being well you know again if he lives as long as you know the his, his eldest great grandparent which statistically is very likely he will see the next century right and he will see whether the warnings of 2 degrees 3 degrees 4 degrees are accurate and and i just think we're completely blind to that no one talks in those terms no one accepts quite how urgent and quite how close these projected impacts are 
Um, we always are, you know, we're arguing about whether they're credible or not and, and, and whether they will happen or not. And of course, the true answer is no one truly knows about the future, but our best guess is that these are credible warnings. And we're facing some bad times. Yeah, and we're facing these these absolutely ridiculously daunting challenges, uh, which is, as a new father, you, you don't really want to be thinking about. You want to be thinking about oh, the future and the happy times that will come for your family and your offspring. And it's um, and of course, that's been kind of the modern enlightenment feel is that every generation, in many ways, gets it better than the last. And on a lot of levels, every generation does get it better than the last. And and, I, and this and Callum's generation is probably within that. There's so many things that are better. And yet there is this big looming cloud on the horizon already impacting in many parts of the world. It's happening already, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely is. And so the piece was very much about how you kind of process that, how you accept that, and then where where do you go with that information? Because you certainly, because, you know, the, the last thing you want to do is um, is raise your child to be terrified of the world and right. uh, depressed and nihilistic about their prospects, because that's that's wrong also. And the piece argues that there's this, you know, in parenthood and in environmentalism, there is this dialectical tension there for any philosophy fans or, or you know, this cognitive dissonance between this this optimism that you have and this terror, really, this yeah. fear that... It's beyond pessimism, things, isn't it? It's it's, it's absolute yeah. terror. And you think, for you know, environmentalists, environmentalists, from my experience, tend to be action people too. They like to do things. And they like to see if they think there's a problem, we need to go out and try and do something about it. And I think the frustration comes and this this despair that we sometimes speak about comes in when you just keep hitting your head against a brick wall and the, the political structures we have in place, the economical structures we have in place, and the pace of change just doesn't seem to be doing it. And so you you find yourself in this difficult space of wanting to go and do something, struggling to do something and working hard at it. But you know, feeling you're sort of pushing it uphill, as it were, and not making the progress that we need and seeing this terrible situation coming down the pipe towards us, thinking, holy cow, you know, holy shit, what are we going to do about this? Mm. And yeah, you, you, you're sort of stuck, aren't you? you? You get this terrible swinging between, okay, today we feel good, or actually before lunchtime, things were going pretty well. But uh, we got some news after lunch that tells us actually it's not going so well. And it seems to be I think the media is good in that sense that it gives us up-to-date information about where we are, but at the same time, sometimes that can be daunting and overwhelming and, and people block it out and there's a risk that people will just say, too much bad news, I'm not interested, and go away and, and we'll just end up doing nothing. Absolutely. And and it's accelerating or or it's getting more obvious, this tension. I mean, if you look at this year, post the Paris Agreement, I'd argue the bulk of the business news in this sphere has been broadly positive. We've seen some really encouraging developments on the technology side with, you know, Tesla's obviously the one people name check, but so many other great clean tech companies coming through. You are seeing the big businesses getting more and more robust and more and more serious about addressing these issues. I mean, this past week, we've even seen Shell, of all people, just starting to hedge their bets a little bit, setting up a new energy division um, and, and saying they're going to start investing in renewables a lot more. I mean, not in any way like the scale that's needed, but you're starting to see. So you've got this broadly positive business story, or I like to see as a broad, broadly positive business story, a broadly positive, not as positive, but a generally positive political story. If you look globally, there are obviously regions and areas where it's terrible, but you know the Paris Agreement did bring people together and sign up to these ambitions and accept there's a problem. And you know those the national action plans that have been put together 
they're, they're not nothing. You know, they're a big, big deal. But then at the same time, every single month, we're getting these record temperature warnings coming through. And they are terrifying. And I mean, I think, I think what actually sparked our conversation on Twitter was the, the spiral chart that many people have probably seen that um, Ed Hawkins put together. It was just a phenomenally clever way of visualizing That's right. quite how terrifying it is. It's just unfolding before quickly, us. Yeah. Yeah, how quickly those temperatures are increasing, and they will. There's no way that they don't translate into significant impacts. We might be able to ride out the worst of it. We might get lucky, but God, it's a risk to take. It's a risk, and and we're just not. They just don't seem to be taking enough action. I think you're right. I, you know, I've I've written about the Paris Agreement saying you know, it's not enough, and we've got to keep going. But almost like, come on, you know, keep stirring up the pot a bit to try and get people moving along. Because if what I worry about, and you've touched on it, I thought really excellent in an excellent way in your article, and you mentioned it earlier here, that you, know, you said here, I've always been allergic to the children are our future school of environmental communication. And and I agree with that. This idea that, as you've said, all things being equal, you'll be here um, until around 2070. Um, that's a long time. And we've got a lot of contribution that we can make today. And uh, this idea that we, oh, the kids will come through and they'll sort it out. You know, it just gets up my nose because I think, guys, you know, we've got a lot of work we can do now. In fact, we've got to prepare the ground for the kids coming through to continue the change process, not to start the change process. So, you know, I get this sense sometimes that people abrogate their responsibility. So I, I like to stir things up and try and get people moving a bit more. But the concern I have is that we don't really know what's coming and uh, if we're doing enough. And as you say, the scientists can argue one way or the other, but every day you see, okay, this forest is now burning this is happening with the Great Barrier Reef and uh, the, the bleaching that we've seen there in the last month or two. And people say, oh, yes, it's El, Nin- El Nino. But, you know, okay, we've, we've had El Ninos in the past, but they just seem to be getting worse. You mentioned Shell, you know. It's great that they're going down that path. At the same time, they're fighting a big oil leak and another big oil leak in the Gulf of Mexico. So it's just, I think I'm getting to the sense, though, that people are saying, right, come on. And, and there's this sense of action coming through now. Are you feeling that in, in what you're seeing, in, in the communications you're seeing with businesses, that they're finally sort of grasping the nettle? Yes and no. I think it's the classic case of kind of leaders and, and followers, and the, the leading group is still far, far too small. Mm. But the good news is the leading group are the companies that have such a strong, you know, they're the world's most successful companies. Right. There's very few of the world's most successful companies, the brand names that we know and you know occasionally love, who aren't properly engaged with this issue and aren't properly concerned about it. And yes, we name check the same ones over again. People like Unilever, Microsoft, SAP, you know, Apple now increasingly doing a lot of you know from not necessarily a great starting point, but doing some really exciting stuff. Tesla, you know, these are kind of the aspirational corporate leaders that have kind of defined the successful side of capitalism for the last 20, 30 years. And they all get it. And they are kind of really investing heavily, moving quickly towards addressing so many of these issues. I mean, there's one weird side, one of the weird things I find about some of the political criticism that comes from people largely on the the right of the political spectrum who sort of criticise a lot of the action that's going on around climate change. They're the people who sort of idolise business leaders left, right and centre right. all the time, over and over again. And then when the business leaders turn around and go, hang on, this is our top priority, we're concerned about this. Oh, no. They suddenly go, oh, no, oh, no, you're wrong. No, no, you're wrong. You're no. wrong You're wrong on this. You're right on everything else, but you're wrong on this right. because of just this utterly blinkered ideological 
worldview that they have. I've always found that slightly bizarre. But yeah, so the, the point being, there are some really strong businesses doing some very serious stuff. And I'm an optimist and I tend, you know, maybe as a journalist, I shouldn't believe what people tell me. But as a rule, I tend to believe there is good intention and a significant investment behind a lot of these moves that are being made. But unfortunately, they are still a relatively small clique. And, and right. the hope is they're the leaders and others will follow. But for the vast majority of businesses just trying to keep their head above water or targeting new markets or just doing the traditional things that businesses do in terms of growing the top line and keeping the bottom line as, you know, growing the bottom line beyond it, there still isn't that engagement. No. And they haven't been forced to take it seriously enough by regulators and they haven't recognised the opportunity. And and that's that's a big worry. Yeah. You mentioned... You mentioned there the regulators, and uh, in your article you talked about uh, an interesting political meeting you went to uh, around an election campaign. You, you've, you've said here, I, I've put it in highlight, you said you talked about listening to the TV debate and how people waffled on when asked about these things, didn't really talk about climate change, in fact. And you said here, for me, the responses were perhaps the most depressing component of a singularly miserable campaign and all the evidence you need of the strange death of political oratory in this country. It's not just in the UK, is it? It's it's globally where, okay, as you say, people came together in Paris. This gives us hope that perhaps the politicians are finally getting it. My sense of Paris is, uh, you know, perhaps I'm a little too cynical sometimes, is the politicians knew that there were millions of people on the streets and if they didn't sign something, the, those protests would continue. And, and, and let's be clear, a few politicians around the world have lost their necks as a result of climate change and people protesting. And you know, the cynical one in me says not only did they go for two, they went for 1.5 just to put a cherry on the cake in terms of degrees warming. But you know, isn't this part of the problem that the politicians, up until now, hopefully Paris is going to see some sort of change, but they're just not grasping the nettle of what needs to be done. And as you say, there are those business leaders having a go out there, but yeah, they just get poo-pooed when the... Uh, when the politicians don't like what they've got to say. What can we do about that? Do we need catastrophe? Do we need floods and storms? And we're seeing forests going up in, in smoke all around the world at the moment. Well, the Arctic ice is is, is what it is. Uh, the, the low in the Arctic ice is the, the lowest it's ever been. The Great Barrier Reef, it's, it's extraordinary in Australia. The Great Barrier Reef has just suffered its worst ever bleaching and the government there has just approved a massive coal mine that's going to dump you know millions of tonnes of sludge onto the barrier reef what is wrong with our political leaders yeah i i just i, I wish i had an answer <laughs> to that question tear your it, hair out it, isn't it well it is it is and i you know i it's difficult i mean i've spoken to several politicians off the record about this people whose intentions are good i genuinely do believe in most i don't like the sort of arguments that politicians are sort of inherently corrupt or failing i think the vast majority of them are trying to do the right thing in difficult circumstances and the vast majority do go into politics with the best intentions but it is it is a collective failure to take this issue more seriously it's and and i think they do have to take the bulk of blame i think that you know businesses do tend to respond well when regulated point in the right directions when the rules of the market are set and they can innovate properly and it is ultimately politicians jobs to lead and set the rules of the game and and set out a country's strategic goals and direction and then use the levers that they have to, to deliver that. And they do still have levers. I know the argument is in sort of in modern politics, they have less power and less control than they did. I'm not entirely sure that's true. They can change things. Um, and also the other thing that actually might make the centre of my next think piece is I've realised as a parent is that 
you can't just rely on people to make these changes. No one has the time. No one has the time or the energy. Um, and it's depressing, but even myself as a sort of an avowed environmentalist, as a new parent, there's no mm. bandwidth for sort of anything else. Right. The changes have to be structural. The changes have to be economy-wide. They have to be infrastructure-led, and they have to be structural. The idea that there's going to be some kind of global spiritual awakening, and we're all suddenly going to go, right, let's make this happen as individuals, is just, I'd love to see it happen. It's not going to. Mm -hmm. The changes have to be led by political strength and policy now shifting investment patterns, shifting infrastructure to transform the world bit by bit. It's not going to be delivered by just saying to people, please recycle more. No. Because, because it, it doesn't work on that sense. So in that sense, the politicians are absolutely failing us. And the thing that I find most frustrating as, as, as a journalist is they're failing with the easy bit as well as the hard bit. Delivering that kind of policy transformation and delivering that invest, shifting investment trends, that's really difficult. That requires a lot of intelligence. Talking about these issues requires very little. Mm -hmm. It just requires a little bit of political bravery, a little bit of the sense of this is the right thing. This is the most important thing. I'm going to make it absolutely clear to my electorate that this is a priority because it's in their interest to know about the risks. It's in their interest to know about the opportunities. And virtually every single world leader, with the arguable exception of President Obama, and he only has done it in his second term. And in the last year or so. In the last two years of his second term. Yeah. They don't talk about it. No. They don't even have the nerve to link, you know, there's so many, as we find at Business Green, this, this, these issues are so embedded in everything that goes on in the economy that you can link everything to it. And yet you will never hear politicians say, they don't even talk about the good stuff they're doing. No. They don't even say, oh, we've got an air pollution problem, but look, here's the exciting things we're doing, funding electric car research, or here's how the world, we're, we're going to make the world a better place with better public transport. So they're, they're not even looking at the upsides, let alone having the nerve to stand up to their populations and say, these are the scary warnings that we face and we need to collectively work together to tackle them. Yes. And that's where Obama in the last two years has been such a breath of fresh air, that kind of willingness to stand up week after week, time and again, and use the platform that he's got to make a really eloquent case for a rapid low-carbon transition. He has. But, he's been great. But I, you but know, the rest, where's, where's the rest of them? Nowhere. nowhere. Yeah, it's frustrating, and it's it's interesting because the thing that drives me crazy is, as you say, even the right wing politicians, which tend to be the most vocal against doing anything um, to look at climate change, they speak about jobs, and I always wonder, well, a job in the renewables sector is a job, uh, in the same way a job in a coal mine is a job, and uh, a job, okay, there's different jobs and different salary levels and all the rest of it, but. If we want to keep people in work, what's wrong with creating a renewables sector or a, or a clean energy sector or, you know, some some new sector that's going to address climate change? That's keeping people in work the same, and they seem to differentiate between what's a good job, i.e., a traditional job, you know, doing things that perhaps pollute, versus new jobs that could actually change and transform the economy. And, and I get frustrated with that. But I just wanted to come back before we come to the end. Is just a really interesting thing you said about. The, the you know this spiritual enlightening of, of individuals versus regulation I agree with you that we need the politicians to lead and we have to have infra, you know 
country-wide, economy-wide infrastructural changes and and uh, otherwise we're not going to make it. That said, I also feel that we vote these politicians in. So it, it, there's a bit of push and pull in the equation, I think, as well. And I think what we are seeing is there is a gradual, it's, it's slow and we wish it was faster. It's a bit like everything we're talking about. People are starting to become aware of the issues of climate change because down the road, their community or their auntie or, or a relation or a friend got their house flooded, unseasonably flooded, or there was a big fire or, or, or there was a big storm to come through and people are starting to say, you know, this climate change stuff might be real. We're seeing temperatures um, that are way off scale. What, what's going on here? They're seeing changes in their landscape and they're starting to get worried about it. And I'm hoping, what I hope is that organisations, environmental organisations that are working on trying to raise this awareness can keep going in the sense that this may in time have an effect of bringing political leadership out of some of these more enlightened citizens that could eventually have political leaders that will take action on this. So it's a bit of a, it's a circle, isn't it? You know, we can say we need to look to our leaders. It's almost like the current generation of leaders we've got, with the exception, I, I agree with you, of, of President Obama, are uh, sort of sitting on the hand on this. And, and that's perhaps because they've been voted in by people who want them to sit on their hands or, or they don't want them to get off their hands enough to actually get them off their hands. In time, as the community and people around the world start saying, hold on, actually, we want you to do something about this. Perhaps leaders will emerge. And we are seeing it in, in some places where green I parties are coming through. Agree. We're seeing it, aren't we? Do you feel that? Do you feel we're seeing it, James, that green, yeah, green I, I, leaders are coming through? There's no way that the public pressure is going to do anything other than increase. And I think savvy politicians who are looking for the long term and particularly younger politicians who are looking for a long career absolutely are starting to recognize this. You know, there is responsibility on both sides. And a lot of politicians, again, I know I spoke with a politician in the UK who was, you know, renowned for their environmentalism, very, very committed. And I sort of said, why, why aren't you doing more? And it was like, well, we need pressure to do more. We can't do it until the public really, really demands it. And it forces the media to get on side. And then we have the kind of political capital to do it. Now, my counter argument to that is you're elected to lead, lead. Mm. And I, I, you know, I think if our, the leaders that we revere through the ages, the, you know, the JFKs and the Churchills and so on, if they'd taken that view, we would have been um, screwed many, many times. Quite over. a different place um, to where we are now, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 you know, I think politicians need to stop using that excuse. But equally, they are right to a degree that it becomes a lot easier to make these transformations if there is clear public backing for them and public pressure to deliver them. And I think there is real genuine optimism on that ground. If you look at all the polling in the UK, and I think it's reflected globally, is that the popularity of renewables and clean energy and clean technologies compared to incumbent technologies is just off the chart. Right. I mean, in the UK, we've had this sort of media campaign led by certain newspapers to kind of vilify wind farms and solar farms and renewable energy at every single turn and characterize it as expensive and unviable. So there's been this huge media blitz against it. And the government polls people every quarter on their sort of preferred energy sources and which are most popular. Solar has over 80% support and wind has over, over two-thirds support. Yeah, and meanwhile, it's huge. Meanwhile, gas and coal are right down below. And again, there's, so there's, and again, we've seen with Tesla the sort of pent-up demand that as soon as somebody produced an electric car that was attractive with a significant range and a reasonable price point, they're queuing around the block to buy them. Yeah, 400 and so odd thousand is, people, I think, have put a forward order in place for a Tesla, something amazing like that. Absolutely staggering. So there is this real pent-up demand, and that will start to filter through. And we've seen it recently that um, London just elected their new mayor and a rather nasty campaign that was 
remembered more for allegations of racism and various other extremism and other things and, and obviously will be remembered as the election of London's first Muslim mayor in, in Sadiq Khan. But the, the undercard to the campaign was that the big issue was the environment. Um, air pollution was a huge issue. Public yeah. transport was a huge issue. The, the Evening Standard newspaper, you know, the newspaper that is centred on London, ran a big, big campaign on air quality. So you're you're starting to see things that wouldn't have happened even three or four years ago becoming more and more prevalent. And I think that pressure on politicians will build. And if, if we come back again to Obama and Clinton, there is no way they wouldn't have taken such a sort of strong stance on their commitment to climate action if they hadn't done the focus groups, right. looked at the polling and gone, this works for us. The people are telling them they want it. Yeah, that there, there's pent up demand for that. And I, I think, you know, again, you've kind of, you know, Australia's had sort of two or three elections now that where climate change has been an absolutely central issue. And yes, maybe the votes have gone for the party that is on the wrong side of history in that debate. But it's still right at the top of the agenda. And as the population shifts and younger people become more influential or well, as younger people grow up, that I don't necessarily think there's going to be people's views aren't going to change on this. I think it is now an embedded part of the culture. I agree with you. And people are getting more Globally. cynical too and, 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 and cranky. I think they're getting cranky about this. They're saying, we know what's coming down the pipeline. We want you to do something about it. Coming to the end of it, I want to come back to what you said about um, the London mayoral election. Just before we do that, just wanted to give a shout out for our friends in, uh, in France, actually, because they didn't I think that their approach was was a bit wrong with the palm oil tax that they were looking to put in place there. And, of course, the Malaysians uh, and Indonesians protested and it's been overturned. But I'm seeing a lot of policy movements coming out of France now that are directed at environmental issues on a global scale and seeing what France can do about it. So whilst I don't think the palm oil tax was the right approach, let's keep an eye on France because I think they're trying to do a few things there. Yeah, absolutely. And they've just proposed this week um, a new carbon floor price. There you go. 30 euros that yeah. looks, looks like it's going to happen. I mean, they've, they've taken, I mean, they've got so much credit for the Paris Agreement, but they, they do seem to be one of building on it. I mean, the, the, unfortunately, the, the caveat to that is an election's coming up right. and there's a risk that it could all change and of course. some rather unpleasant people are doing quite well in the polls at the moment. Yeah. But, you know, if, if the government can, again, embed that these policies, then you're looking at some really encouraging developments. Fingers crossed. I mean, the unpleasant people uh, are affected by climate change too, if, they, if they're if they open, well, exactly. to open their yeah. minds. As so, much as they try to deny that they are. Exactly. Uh, they, they are indeed. So look, just coming coming to an end, I, I really uh, enjoyed your blog a year ago. I'm looking forward to you updating it and reflecting your thoughts. Your, your title of the blog was The Joy and the Fear. And, and through the blog, uh, you mentioned, you know, the joy beats the fear much more often than not. And you've said that a couple of times. And I think the example of the election in London, the mayor election in London, was terrific. Where there was a fear campaign around terrorism and this guy, you know, this guy Sadiq. Um, uh, sorry, Sadiq Khan. Sadiq Khan. Sorry, I should well, know, but you know, there was, I was this just going off in the middle of it. That, one of the other problems with soft phones, they they don't allow you to. You can't turn them off. Engaged. I was talking to Toby Webb uh, the other day, nice. and his phone started croaking during a discussion. So uh, <laughs> I, think he, I thought he'd invited the Rainforest Alliance in to be part of the discussion, but. Uh, no, look, I just thought it was a great example when Sadiq Khan got elected because there was a fear campaign and it was pretty nasty, as you say. But look, once again, it's almost like the hope and the joy won over. People people refused to be influenced by that. And it wasn't that um, Zach Goldsmith lost by one or two votes. 
Sadiq Khan won resoundingly. And and as you say, there were environmental issues at the forefront of his campaign and and pushed by by the papers. I think this gives us great cause for hope. And uh, and you've mentioned hope many times. You've said uh, it is part of human nature that the hopes tend to win out over the doubts. My my worry sometimes is that people sit there and hope and forget that they've actually got to do something. But I think people are starting to do something. You, you're going to go away and, and write a new article, James. Where do you think you're going to come out at the end? Where, what's what's a what's a summary of where you think we are now? God, geez, what uh, it's it's such a tough one. It's I mean, a lot of things have changed in the last year. Uh, as I say, the boy's bigger. He's he's walking around now, or nearly <laughs> walking around, and uh, my life has changed beyond all recognition. But um, I think you come down in a very similar place to where I was last year in this just this inherent tension between the pessimism and the optimism. And as I say, the, the updates on a daily basis seem to sort of strengthen both sides of, of the argument. You know, I, I think that, as I say, that spiraling graphic of, and that sort of that, just that, and the records that are being broken now every single month on temperature and, and other factors are terrifying. And I think you, you're wrong to, anyone should, is wrong to underplay it. But equally, I think there are so many, and, and, and then on the political side, there's just, again, this real kind of populist kickback that we're seeing in so many countries. And populism has no time for these kind of big long-term issues. It's all about the short term. It's all about, you know, and whatever it takes to win. And there's no real sense of long-term duty and stewardship of our world and our national and international future. So all that has to be acknowledged. But broadly, it's, you know, whatever you want to call it, human spirit, optimism, bias, that's there. And I think there are a lot of trends that you can be massively, massively positive about. Um, and I mean, just a couple of them that I'm definitely going to pick up on is, I mean, one of them is I've gone to four days a week work to help co-parenting, looking after the boys. And my wife and I are both working part-time to do that. And and Dave Roberts over at um, Grist and now Vox has written a couple of fascinating pieces about and again, this is quite esoteric stuff, but this idea of working less, consuming less, but actually getting much more rewarding things out of life. I think that trend is going to come through with the millennial generation. I think there's a much bigger focus on experience over product consumption. And I think that's a really fascinating trend. And, and again, I, my little brief experience of it in part-time working as a father is just the most rewarding thing I've possibly ever done and I would recommend it to pretty much anyone who could ever who who can consider it because it's it's this it, it you know it just touches on environmental issues but it touches on them in a really important way because you know it is, it is it is about a slightly different way of looking at priorities and it's fascinating how the economy is built on this constant consumption model but there are other models and they are just as rewarding in terms of utility and and, and happiness for people so I think that's something I'll definitely be touching on. Um, and the other trends are just the technology trends and the pace at which they're going is is staggering. Um, as I mentioned at the start, I used to write about the IT industry and it's such an important model because the IT industry is the only industry that delivered a global technological revolution in a generation. It's, you know, yeah. My parents... It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely staggering. When I first started at school, in as a primary school, 1985, there, there were no computers, none. Now everyone's and now kids one. starting a primary school will have iPads. Yep. And, you know, that, that transformation has been so rapid. And, and we're seeing that now start to happen with a lot of these clean technologies. Massively long way to go. 
but the progress we're seeing on energy storage, the progress we're seeing on solar conversion rates, the progress we're seeing on electric cars, that does give you hope that my boy, when he leaves school in whatever it will be, 18 years' time, there's a very real chance that the world will have changed as fundamentally as between that period when I was at school, when I started school without any computers and you left school with a mobile phone and computers everywhere. And I I think there is that potential for that truly drastic technological change. And we've seen it, you know, we're seeing, if you believe the numbers, emissions start to decouple. We're seeing some fascinating technology progress in spheres that no one even talks about yet, like material science, ways of getting carbon emissions out of the atmosphere. All these things do add up to a degree of hope. And and just to finish off, just last thing, I watched recently the documentary, I don't know if it's been available globally, but the BBC had a documentary on the Obama years and he, he finished, um, they were lucky enough to interview him and he, he finished by pointing out that, you know, historically we are still developing, things are getting better. And if you as a human being had to be born in any period in history and you got to pick what period, but you weren't allowed to say whether you were going to be man, woman, where you were going to be born, what sexual orientation you'd have, and you, you weren't allowed to pick any other variable apart from the point in history that you were being born, you'd choose now. And you think he's right on that. I think, you know, the, the general trends in terms of reduced levels of violence, reduced levels of discrimination, the optimism in terms of the technologies that we do have and the ability that we have to tackle this challenge, because that's the one big block is, well, that's lots of big blocks, but the, the huge block is still climate change. That's the risk that could reverse the progress that we've made. But we do have the, we do still have the skills and the ability and, and the technologies to tackle it. So the joy still beats the fear, just about. Just about. It's, it's, it's a tough run some days. It's a tough run. Well, thank you so much, James. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Let's hope President Obama is right. I'm optimist. I I try to be optimistic about things, and uh, and I do agree with you. I think the joy beats the fear, and uh, we've still got a time to pull the iron out of the fire. And uh, I, I thank you for your work, and uh, the, you know you're bringing a lot of knowledge and information to people. And I think that's really an important part of the equation because if people know what's coming down the pipeline, if they know what actions are being taken, there's a chance that they can be inspired to take action themselves. So thanks for your article, the joy and the fear. We look forward to the update, and uh, and look forward to hearing how Callum. Uh, Callum gets on. Thanks so much, James. Thank you so much, Scott. It's been fascinating to talk and, uh, and yeah, hopefully speak again soon. We will. Good on you, mate. Cool. Cheers. Thank you.